I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This time, we pick up with segment three of our reality show part one archive presentation, covering the interview we conducted back in fall of 2019 with Professor Martin Jay, an expert on the idealist philosophers we've discussed over the preceding two parts. You'll note that there is some background noise. That's because we held this interview, back in those halcyon pre-COVID days, in Professor Jay's house, where his wife was busy baking. We like to think it only adds to the ambiance. We also touch on some fascinating ideas about reality from non-Western philosophy toward the end. If you're just checking in now, we remind you this interview will make much more sense if you begin with parts one and two of this archive presentation. May we also suggest that after you finish this segment, you check out our That's Not Canon Network sister show, Nerds Amalgamated. To our American ears, amalgamated sounds like taking groups of self-proclaimed geeks and using a series of grinders and blenders to puree them into a fine, uniform paste. But it turns out that's one of them terms they use in other English-speaking countries to mean what we Yanks refer to when we say incorporated, which on reflection makes much more sense. In any case, their show's subjects really run the gamut of stuff that is of potential interest to nerds. Just take the title of the latest episode, available as we record this, where they cover NBA Jam, bacteria data storage, console energy consumption, and yo-yo games, all in a single hour, which, as it turns out, is the same approximate amount of time it will take us to introduce our new topic in the upcoming Secret Society series. That sounds like a joke, but it's not. The intro is literally two episodes long. In any case, check out the show with the link in our show notes and enjoy our interview with Martin J. ...of what reality is. But here we're going to hand this discussion off to an honest-to-God professional. That's Dr. Martin Jay, a renowned intellectual historian and the Sidney Hellman Ehrman Professor of History at UC Berkeley. I'm Martin Jay. I'm Professor Emeritus of History at the University of California, Berkeley. My specialties are European intellectual history, mostly 19th and 20th century, visual culture, and critical theory. And I'm fascinated by the relationship between philosophy and the real world. And I think this is a you know, excellent uh, sort of lead into questions about uh, conspiracy theory. Idealism is an extraordinarily vexed and complex term. But broadly speaking, I would say that there is a preference in idealist explanations uh, of reality for the predominance of spirit, uh, of idea, of notion, of intellect, of concept over material reality, uh, a predilection that sometimes means that there is a search for something deeper that is uh, ideal, that is different from the empirical reality, from the phenomenal reality, from the reality that we experience. So that idealism tends in a way to have what we might call a dual notion of reality, in which there's a difference between surface or phenomenon and depth and essence, uh, which produces the possibility of distrust for mere appearances. Now, 
the Platonic tradition, believes in the reality of forms uh, that are uh, deeper, higher, more eternal than the appearances that uh, participate in them. And that this dichotomy between forms or essences and mere appearances and the particulars which they somehow uh, underline or whatever. The importance of Rene Descartes is enormous for modern philosophy, and there are many different ways to try to tease out uh, the uh, implications for the question of conspiracy in particular. The one that I would stress is the importance of Cartesian doubt. I mean, what Descartes does is to say that we cannot base our judgments about the world, about reality, on authority that we can't uh, base it on scripture, we can't base it on textual residues of the past, but we have to basically clear all of that away and think for ourselves, and we need a method to do this. Uh, and We need a method that involves a kind of rational uh, understanding of the ideas in our minds that are clear and distinct, that in a way give us access to realities that um, certain of our sensual experience and certainly textual residues of the past will not give us. So this is a theory that in a way prepares the modern world for the skepticism uh, and uh, the distrust of authority, uh, which allows people to begin to think about potential occulted realities that produce uh, conspiracies. Now, having said that, Descartes himself was, of course, not a skeptic and tried to rebuild the world on new foundations. So the whole modern uh, enterprise of science and certain modern philosophies are based on a new way of making sense of the world, which does not rely on, say, looking at Aristotelian or other uh, classical sources, but uh, tries to think for itself in the vernacular of the day in French rather than Latin and so forth. So this gives warrant for a uh, scientific method, which itself has a strong skeptical and doubting dimension. Now, the other thing about Descartes that's extremely important, and that makes him more of a modern thinker than some of his predecessors, is his interest in causality and mechanical determination. So that one might say, and this is, I think, a, a crucial issue, that prior to modern science, there was an ambiguity about the notion of reason, the notion of cause, the notion of justification of ground. There were efficient causes, uh, causes that came first, causes that led to effects uh, in a kind of uh, temporal way. Uh, you know, you uh, hit yourself uh, in the foot uh, and your foot hurts. Uh, there were also final causes. Aristotle had the notion of final causes, which are teleological. And here the idea is that the purposes that exist in the world, the reasons for something, are not simply uh, given by something that's prior, but by something that will be in the future, uh, a cause that leads to a purpose that is realized by an action in the future. Descartes in modern science was highly skeptical of final causes, of teleology. Not in all cases, and you know, organic uh, versions of science sometimes have a different uh, understanding than uh, biological versions than, say, physics. But by and large, teleology was to a great extent banished. I mean, I'm not a serious student of Barclay, but my sense of his um, role is that he was basically a dead end. That is, that Barclay thought that uh, the correlation between our ideas and the external world was a function of God producing the ideas in our own minds. That in a way, there was no external causation. There was a causation produced by divine intervention. And what this does is short-circuit the need to find a correlation or a lack thereof between internal ideas, internal perceptions, and external, let's say, objects or external events. So Barclay, in a way, um, made it too easy. 
and subsequent idealism. I mean, Kant is the great figure because Hume had basically banished uh, from philosophy through his own skepticism uh, the Barclay solution. I mean, Hume simply said we just don't have sufficient warrant to make that kind of optimistic assumption about the intervention of God in our own minds. So this led uh, to what Kant famously said was the end of his dogmatic slumber. And what he needed to do was to find a way to avoid the absolute skepticism based, uh, based on simple habit or a kind of non-scientific repetition of uh, something that could indeed change in the future without any necessity. He had to recover some sort of, let's say, basis or warrant for the optimism about the scientific method. And he did this through uh, an epistemological idealism, which emphasized the importance of the constitutive subject. But it was not an individual constitutive subject. It was not an historically bounded constitutional subject. It was not a gendered or culturally specific constitutional subject. It was uh, the subject of, in a way, uh, who is all intelligible beings. I mean, we could say simply all humans, but he went even beyond that. So to have some sort of understanding of the world, to have some sort of uh, regularity in the world, we had to assume that all human beings, no matter their backgrounds, no matter their gender or culture, shared a transcendental consciousness, which had the capacity to order the world. Now, by ordering it, it doesn't mean creating uh, the world ex nihilo in terms of content, because there were things in themselves that were out there that he ontologically assumed existed, but which we could not know. What we could know were objects of experience, and that experience was produced by the constitutive faculties, we might say, of the transcendental mind in combination with the stimuli from the external world. So what he called synthetic a priori judgments about that external world involved an a priori quality in the mind, but was synthetic because they produced new knowledge based on uh, the importance of our experience with an external reality. So whether or not this was fully convincing, and of course post-Kantian uh, idealism didn't think so, it at least avoided the skepticism of Hume without retreating into the overly optimistic idealism based on God's intervention in the human minds of a Barclay. I mean, Barclay basically uh, finessed the question of our knowledge of an external reality by saying that it was less important that that external reality had some sort of impact on our consciousness than uh, God's giving us uh, ideas which were commensurate with that external world. So it's a kind of literal deus ex machina that God comes in and uh, saves the day. Now Descartes also, in a way, used God, uh, the God who would not deceive, in uh, a way to bridge the gap between consciousness and the external world of extension. It basically was a kind of I would say, jerry-built solution, which was based on a certain faith that couldn't be proved, it was not scientific, and that ultimately didn't convince people. So what we get with uh, Hume is taking that to a logical extreme and saying, look, we don't have these guarantees. We can't believe. I mean, Hume is basically a, a pagan, atheistic, uh, non-believer. But anyway, God does not function for him as a guarantee of the truthfulness of what's in our uh, brains. So he resorts to habit, to convention, uh, to experience, uh, understood in a certain way, to give us some sort of order, because the world is not utterly random. I mean, I expect the sun to come up tomorrow. It may not. I'm not sure. It doesn't have to. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to uh, go to sleep worried about that. So Hume is, is a man of the world, knows that, is not a skeptic uh, who takes it to a radical extreme. 
And uh, his genius, in a way, is giving us a reassurance that we don't need the guarantees that Barclay and you know, Diaz and the others before him, like uh, Descartes, felt we needed to feel secure in a world that no longer believed back in the medieval sense uh, in the universals that could be understood by a simple rationalization. So he is able to live with uncertainty. And what we get with subsequent idealism, with Kant in particular and his followers, is the fear that that's not enough, that you can't live with uncertainty, that we have to find some ground, we have to find some way to verify, we have to find some way to feel that we're not making it up out of whole cloth and that uh, science is more than just uh, a human invention, that it has some um, commensurability with the world as it exists. I mean, Kant was definitely a believer in the importance of Newtonian science and mathematics and all the recent discoveries as a way to understand the natural world. But he also understood that there were limits to its extrapolation to the world of culture, of uh, morality, of human agency. And so he wrote his second critique uh, with an interest uh, in the human freedom to intervene in the world. And what it creates is the understanding, we might say, of the world of history, the world of human action, as a world that is ruled to some extent by uh, prior causes, but also by human actions, by human intentionality, by the possibility of being free rather than being uh, an automaton which then, of course, opens the possibility for the types of uh, exaggerated belief in intentionality in which everything has a purpose, which everything is basically attributable to human intervention. And then, of course, the question is, who are the humans who intervene and how broad or narrow are the people with the power to make an intervention that actually has an ultimate impact. And this is a question that we're still, of course, uh, grappling with. To try to make sense of the Kantian legacy uh, in a soundbite is, of course, impossible because of the variety of issues that he dealt with. Kant has been subjected to 200 years of critique, and so there are a thousand reasons why Kant is wrong. But the fact that he continues to be part of the canon and continues to stimulate an enormous amount of literature, some of which is favorable, uh, some of which tries to salvage aspects of his work, shows that the questions he asked are by no means dead. So one would have to really parse which Kant and what the defenses are given. But I, I would say Kant is still, in important ways, a player. And there are figures in contemporary political theory, I mean, Jürgen Habermas to some extent, for example, who derive some of their ideas from a kind of Kantian notion of the limiting of reason, but nonetheless uh, not giving up on a certain kind of reasoning, a certain kind of uh, communicative rationality, which is very different from the strong emphatic notion of rationality that other uh, idealists like Hegel believed in. Well, I think the major relationship between Schopenhauer and Kant has to be understood through their differing understandings of the notion of will. Kant, uh, especially in the second critique, emphasized the importance of human will uh, as opposed to the termination of the natural world, so that the causality of freedom can be initiated by humans who can will to follow the categorical imperative, follow the 
laws of reason that are given by some sort of intuitive sense almost of what constitutes an ought, what constitutes duty. But the crucial thing is that it is a will that is not arbitrary. It's a will that wills according to the law. It chooses to accept the law. And Kantian autonomy involves the ability of the individual to choose correctly, to choose what should be done, to choose what uh, he is obliged or she is obliged to do. Now, they don't have to do it. They have the freedom to uh, avoid following that uh, sin, we might say. It's an old Christian notion. Perhaps we have the ability to follow God's law or we can sin. Schopenhauer changes this in two ways. First, will is not rational. Uh, will is essentially irrational. Uh, it's like the desire that has no uh, justification. Uh, it simply is uh, a need for something that can't be justified uh, and need not be grounded. It just simply is. So it has a kind of life philosophical notion that's part of something prior to reflection. Uh, prior to human ratiocination. Secondly, the will is not individual. The will is collective. The will is uh, meta-subjective. Uh, the will exists on some deep ontological level so that the world is somehow ruled not by, uh, you know, notions of, uh, let's say, Aristotelian rationality or platonic intelligibility, but rather by the pulsing, irrational needs of a will that goes beyond the individual. Now, this creates a kind of passivity and a kind of pessimism about the human capacity to shape the world. So one of the lessons that was drawn by Schopenhauerians in especially the mid-19th century after the failures of the Revolution of 1848 was that the world was not amenable to human control, that the optimism of earlier idealists, Kant and Hegel, basically were optimistic with some qualms. This optimism was misplaced, and that instead one had to really submit to a kind of will. So it, uh, you know, had many implications later, a part of uh, the 19th and into the 20th century, where people became basically defeatist about the possibility of uh, utopian or liberal even experiments in changing the world. And Schopenhauerian pessimism could be warrant for a retreat into aestheticism or retreat into a kind of, let's say, Eastern mystical version of seeing the world as corrupt and trying to get beyond it to something uh, deeper. Now, this is a kind of cartoon version of Eastern thought, but it could be abetted, it could be helped by a Schopenhauerian version of this irrational collective will, very, very different from Kant's version of the will. Was Schopenhauer himself, in his post-Kantian way, open to Eastern ideas? I think in the 19th century in Germany, there was a very imperfect understanding of ideas from Indian or Chinese or other Eastern traditions. And Schopenhauer might have taken some sustenance from Buddhism or whatever, but I think by and large, even without them, he would have come to these notions. There are traditions in the West, mystical perhaps in theological terms, that may also be seen as uh, anticipating this. I mean, I'm always nervous about these kind of associations with large-scale, somewhat cartoon versions of other schools of thought. Uh, but certainly Schopenhauer and Eastern mysticism could in later years be seen as a package that went against a certain kind of scientific and uh, even skeptical version of uh, Western philosophy. If one wants to think about other philosophical sources to make sense of, say, conspiracy theories and the larger question of how we know the world and what we should be skeptical about and what we should believe, one way to think about it is think about the relationship between cognition and projection and paranoia. In Dialect of Enlightenment by Max Horkheimer and Theodor Adorno, a text that I've, you know, over the years been very influenced by, they point out that all cognition 
has a moment of paranoia, a moment of projection. Now, this is, in a way, a, a kind of reinterpretation of the Kantian idea of the constitutive subject, that we don't know passively, we know through a kind of projection onto the world of various categories that, for Kant, were hardwired, uh, transcendental, universal, we couldn't avoid uh, imposing them. What Horkheimer and Adorno argue is that there's also in historical understanding, not merely understanding the natural world, a certain moment of projection in which we are engaged in a kind of making sense of contingency, making sense of randomness through uh, a kind of a genius desire to see a figure in the carpet, to use the famous phrase from Henry James, that we don't want to be in some ways uh, human skeptics. We want to find some sort of order in the disorder. Now, what this involves is a suspicion of the appearance of disorder on the surface and a belief that there's something deeper, there's something more basic, that through a kind of indirect means, not through the immediate evidence of the senses, we can perhaps discern. So the great masses of suspicion, as they were called, this is the term that's introduced by Recur, the great masses of suspicion, Freud, Marx and I think probably Nietzsche would be the other major figure, all gave us warrant for believing that there were occult forces that we had to understand that were operating behind the backs and against the wills of people. This is Marx's phrase. And therefore, cognition, to get to that deeper level, has to be in some way able to project, and this is the paranoid version of it, given a kind of benign reading, project meaningfulness even purpose and intentionality to a world that seems to be utterly random, contingent, uh, and meaningless. The problem, of course, is the issue of how far we can go. In other words, we look for too much meaning. We look for too much occult operations beneath the surface. We end up having a kind of almost caricature version, say, of Marxist or Freudian understandings of the world, which everything is a result of the class struggle or a result of uh, Oedipal uh, rebellion or whatever the kind of version of those uh, explanations might be. So you can go too far and that there are times when it doesn't provide uh, answers to uh, this kind of desire for meaningfulness, that there is no figure in this particular carpet or the figure is too complex to be reduced to any one thing. But without that desire, the curiosity for intelligibility, and perhaps the belief that there's some intentionality behind intelligibility, we would have no knowledge of uh, the world at all. So in a weird way, conspiracy theories are parasitic on what might be seen as healthy versions of even scientific, but certainly historical and cultural knowledge. And therefore they have a kind of plausibility which they would not have in their other fantasies. And we also, of course, know that they're on a spectrum uh, in which there are uh, conspiracies which have been, in fact, proven to be true. Thanks so much to, well, to Dr. J. Is that a second basketball reference? Anyway, thanks for that fascinating interview. And as we prepare to move to our next topic, we want to briefly remind you of Schopenhauer's conclusion that the underlying reality of things unto themselves, as envisioned by Kant, was a misapprehension of a single thing, differentiated only by position in time or space, meaning everything is part of a single unitary whole. And we remind you of that because it's at this point that the pessimistic German ended up discovering that an entirely different, unrelated philosophical tradition got there way before he did. Now, 
If we're amateurs when it comes to Western philosophy, and make no mistake, we absolutely are, then our knowledge of the philosophical history of Asia, stretching thousands of years before the Greeks and encompassing a broad and varied array of robust cultural and intellectual traditions, along with thousands of important philosophers and mystics, which we are, due to our woeful ignorance, going to have to refer to generally under the umbrella term Eastern philosophy, is virtually a crime against podcasting. But it would be even worse for us to ignore it, so we're going to do our level best. We'll limit ourselves to a quick gloss on the collected ideas of various thinkers in Hindu and Buddhist philosophy and how they have explored our perceptions of self and reality, and in turn, how they came to the conclusion that those very concepts are fucked up from the jump. To do so, we're going to rely on a bunch of white, non-Asian experts, because we don't speak these languages and we're willing to bet you don't either. So we take what we can get. Yeah. So get off our dick. In his course, Great Minds of the Eastern Intellectual Tradition, Professor Grant Hardy starts us off with the Hindu Vedas and Upanishads. These scriptures and hymns are among the most ancient religious writing in the world and outline the basics of the philosophy that would underpin not only modern Hinduism, but also eventually Buddhism and other important religions. The key concepts for our purposes within those texts are Atman, or the unchanging eternal self, and Brahman, the ultimate external reality that creates and sustains the universe. Hardy continues. The sage's great breakthrough is the equation Atman equals Brahman. The essence of you is identical to the essence of everything else. In the West, this idea is called monism. Our experience of being separate from everyone and everything is an illusion. Moksha comes when we realize this and can be reabsorbed into Brahman, the great world soul. I should note here that moksha is the escape from the endless cycle of death and rebirth that underpins many Eastern religions, where most Western religions are predicated on the desirability of living forever in paradise. Both of the Eastern religious philosophies we're considering are focused on getting out of this whole endless living thing and merging instead with some sort of universal soul, losing all individual identity in the process. Which individual identity, again, is seen as an illusion in the first place? There's actually some really solid scientific reasoning behind the idea that the self is an illusion, which we'll delve into when we cover consciousness next time. But it's amazing to think that, as Schopenhauer realized, Asian religions got to this conclusion thousands of years ago. The other major figure whose thought we need to contend with is Siddhartha Gautama, or as literally everyone better knows him, the Buddha. Like most religious founders, Gautama's life is some combination of fact and myth, with later interpreters adding a variety of unlikely miracle stories around his birth. For example, immediately after his birth, he took seven steps forward. A lotus flower instantly bloomed in each step, and he then recited a poem about how important his birth was. Gangsta. But the more reliable parts of the story are remarkable enough. Born in modern-day Nepal in either the 6th or 5th century BC, he was a prince who grew up in luxury, married and had a son before being overcome with the artificiality of his life. He gave it all up at age 29, leaving the palace and his family behind to become a wandering, ascetic holy man. For six years, he traveled with and learned from Hindu ascetics before realizing that he didn't feel like he was learning anything from starving himself and living in filth. He was just hungry and gross. He then formulated what he called the Middle Way, a mode of living that was neither the sensual world of the palace nor the purely abstemious world of asceticism. His philosophy took a number of ideas from Hinduism, but uniquely he taught that there was no such thing as a soul. Hardy again. All sentient beings are composite, transient and soulless. Any grasping at permanence ends in failure and suffering. 
Enlightenment is simply realizing that there is no part of you that is eternal and lasting. Instead, you are a combination of the five aggregates, a body, feelings, perceptions, dispositions, and consciousness, all of which are changing all of the time. You may well hear echoes of Hume's assertion that when we consider the self, all we find are appetites and perceptions, right? So some of those aggregates may outlast your body and be reincarnated in another collection of matter. But if, for example, the collection of aggregates that calls itself Fearful Jesuit could overcome the illusion that there is a Fearful Jesuit who has needs and ambitions and desires, then his aggregates would simply dissipate after his death, and then this not-Jesuit could find peace and permanence in Nirvana. Come on, Jesuit. The not-self that your aggregates have yet to dispel the illusion of should be better than that. The Buddha's is a truly radical philosophy, that the solution to suffering, and Buddhism asserts that all existence is suffering, is not trying to alleviate it, since all such attempts are necessarily temporary. Rather, the key is in realizing that there is no self to do the suffering. So, those are the two main topics we wanted to cover in our brief tour through Eastern ideas about reality and selfhood, but there are many more. As Buddhism traveled from its homeland in India, where it's really not very popular these days, to East Asian countries like China, Korea, and Japan, where it remains extremely popular. It encountered native philosophies like Confucianism and especially Taoism, which has its own unique approach to these topics. We'll include one particularly resonant story here from the Taoist philosopher Zhuangzi and his famous butterfly dream. Once Zhuangzi dreamed he was a butterfly, a butterfly flitting and fluttering about, happy with himself and doing as he pleased. He didn't know that he was Zhuangzi. Suddenly, he woke up, and there he was, solid and unmistakably Zhuangzi. But he didn't know if he was Zhuangzi who had dreamt he was a butterfly, or a butterfly dreaming that he was Zhuangzi. I'm just saying, these folks had a lot going on, even a very long time ago. Okay, we're about to throw up our ignorant hands at getting across anything more here, but we're going to leave you with a few clips from the famous English-American popularizer of Eastern philosophy, Alan Watts. Yes, he's considered a dilettante by many important Zen Buddhist thinkers, but we still believe the way he brings to life the idea of maya, that is, the Hindu concept of the world as illusion, is quite helpful. M-A-Y-A. This is one of the most rich ideas that has ever been thought by the mind of man, because it has such a great multiplicity of meanings. Our world is wiggly. We are, all of us are wiggly objects. Trees are... Rocks are, clouds are, waters are, the outlines of islands, and so on. It's all wiggly. And so in that sense, the, the universe is rather like an enormous Rorschach plot. basic form of the cosmic game, according to the Hindu view, is the game of hide-and-seek. Or you might call it the game of lost and found. Or again, now you see it, now you don't. So that one doesn't realize union with the self after death, later than a certain time. All references to the hereafter should correctly be understood as the herein, as a domain deeper than egocentric consciousness. That is to say, when you get down to the bottom of the egocentric consciousness, you get to its limit. 
which is figuratively its death. Then you go on inwards, the self deeper than the conscious attention. And in that way, you go inwards to eternity. You don't go onwards to eternity. To go onwards is to find only time and time and time and more time and more time in which things go round and round and round forever. But to go in is to go to eternity. But in the ordinary way, when we're talking about this graphically and vividly in imagistic terms, we can talk about the everlasting game of hide and seek, which the self plays with itself. It forgets who it is and then creeps up behind itself and says, boo! And that's a great thrill. It pretends that things are getting serious, just as a great actor on the stage. Although the audience know that what they're seeing is only a play, the skill of the actor is to take the audience in and to have them all sitting in anxiety on the edges of their seats or to be weeping or laughing or utterly involved in what they really know is only a play. So you would imagine that if there were a very great actor with absolutely superb technique, he would take himself in. And he, you see, would feel that the play was real. Well, that's their idea of what we're doing here and now. We are all, the Brahman, acting our own parts, being human, playing the human game so beautifully that he is enchanted. Do you see what enchanted means? Under the influence of a chant, hypnotized, spellbound, fascinated, and that fascination is Maya. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.